Welcome. I'm Lynn Nygaard. I'm the director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture. And so welcome to Inside the Lab with the CNBC. Um, today we're talking with Kenneth Carter, uh, Charles Howard Candler Professor of Psychology at Oxford College here at Emory University. And uh, these conversations are intended to highlight the work of some of our um, prestigious colleagues around the Emory community. And so welcome. And one, um, I'd like to just start by asking you to briefly talk about your trajectory. Well, actually, it, this is, you know, I've actually been at Oxford for quite some time, and um, yeah. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I was a student at Oxford. I do know that about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. And yeah. so I went to Oxford um, as an undergraduate and then off to Emory College, had a lot of the uh, professors that I'm still working mm -hmm. with now as colleagues. Um, then uh, went to graduate school at University of Michigan in clinical psychology. And um, when I left Michigan, I actually came back to Atlanta. My first full-time job out of graduate school um, was right was not at Emory, but right next door um, at the Centers for Disease Control um, as a, a behavioral epidemiologist. So I worked at the um, as one of those uh, disease detectives uh, that people yeah. uh, here that are very busy right now. Uh, yes, um, very busy. That's right. And. Then I, uh, but I, but there was something sort of missing. You know, I, I, I like mm -hmm. the world of research, but I also sort of missed um, interacting with, with, with students and, and yeah. teaching. So I, I left the CDC and started teaching at Oxford. Um, and I've been there. Um, I just tell people for over 20 years. I've mm -hmm. sort of stopped counting at 20 yeah, years. Yeah, I know the feeling. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm yeah. trained as a clinical psychologist. Um, I teach courses in introductory psychology in the clinical neuroscience, um, in psychopathology, um, and uh, in other sort of areas. But one of the things I feel like I, I really love to do is to take what can be sometimes complicated and dull topics and mm -hmm. make them really interesting and in translating them to, into their everyday language. Because I feel like there's a lot of great information out there uh, about psychology, neuroscience, and, 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 you know, mind, brain, and culture kinds of things mm -hmm. that are really trapped in journals for the everyday person. And, and being able to translate those that will make them interesting for everyday people is, uh, is a passion of mine. So what, um, what, could you describe what sort of key elements help make that translation possible, right? Or, uh, I, that's a hard question, yeah. like, but yeah. And, you know, so for me, it's, it's part of the key elements are not just the information about the translation, but really the sort of passion behind what makes it interesting. And right. so the sort of the story behind it, I'm, I'm not right. trained as a science writer, but I love that kind. That's what I love to read. Um, and right. so I, uh, so looking, you know, when, when my students ask me about research, you know, I tell them it's a tool, but behind the research is really the passion to understand something in the world. And, right. and, and sometimes it's the story about that passion is what makes the research interesting, you know? And right. so, um, so, so to me, it's, it's, it's all about storytelling. In fact, when, when, when people ask me like, well, what got me interested in going into clinical psychology? When I think about it, it's, I, I just love a good story. <laughs> and, right. And, right. and that's part <laughs> of what, what clinical psychology is about. Right. And, um, 
so it you know in conjunction with your teaching and i noticed that your um you know you have a recent book out um, mm -hmm. um entitled buzz inside the minds of thrill seekers um daredevils and adrenaline junkies and it's um through cambridge cambridge university press and i noticed that you also teach a course on this so could you talk about the relationship between your scholarship and your teaching and then i'd really like to hear more about the book <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah and so um and, and it's a course that anybody can take it's, it's, through, it's on yeah. the coursera platform right now yeah. um and we actually traveled around atlanta and different locations to 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 film some of the uh the parts of the course we went to a uh a mud run in uh in middle georgia for part oh, of oh wow um, yeah. Okay. Is that where people race in the mud, right? Yes. Yeah. They race in the mud. Yeah. Yeah. It's an obstacle course race. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and so here I'm I'm dressed up in a suit and trying to explain why they're doing what they're doing, and then people right. are like running behind me and diving into things. <laughs> right. uh, we went to this uh, Oakland Cemetery for part of it. Um, so it's a very right. different kind of teaching than the kind of teaching I've done with students. Um, but right. at, at this point, thousands of people have taken this this uh, this Coursera course, and it's been it was a really uh, fun thing to do. And so the right. relationship of that was really, and actually I did that Coursera course before I wrote the book, or uh, I, at yeah, the, at I was around the same time that. of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it really informed some of the writing that I was doing. And mm -hmm. then I would also hear from people about their stories and their, and, 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 and some researchers about their research that I ended up incorporating mm -hmm. into the book as well. And so yeah. to me, there's this really two, way relationship between the research that I do and the writing that I do in my teaching that I feel like I always learn something um, right. when I'm teaching a course and sometimes I'll, I'll jot it down so that I can make sure <laughs> to incorporate that in something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th that kind of experience of um, sort of teaching m makes you have to have a narrative that's understandable and accessible yeah. and, and that's part of good research too. Yeah. Right. And you know you where know. your gaps are. You know what yeah. you don't understand, and you know what you need to sort of figure out a little bit more, um, especially right. in this kind of writing, which is uh, more of a um, sort of a crossover book, which has the elements of a of a of an academic book. But it's really a book that anyone could just sort of sit down and read um, because it has a lot of those narratives in it and the stories of people, and also the stories of the research and the researchers as well. Right, right. Um, so what got you interested in this particular topic, right? I know that you know you're interested in personality, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. um and uh sort of individual differences, I guess would that be yeah. Um absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And also the clinical psychologist. And so Yeah. And and interestingly, this is not the and I'll show you the people who cover it. Yeah, perfect. And, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It wasn't and and I've come to love the cover. They they did a really yeah. nice job with the book, and yeah. and it actually wasn't the book that I intended to write. Interestingly, mm -hmm. so I at first I, I was thinking about clients that I've had before, and students that I've had in the past, and people that I know. I know a lot of thrill seekers, mm -hmm. and I, I thought of them as. Um, what I call chaos junkies. And right. whenever I say that term, I get this look and I noticed it in your face now that, oh yeah, I know exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These are people that just love chaos and they, mm -hmm. they seem to create chaos in their life. 
So the original idea of the book was a book about people who were highly chaotic and how to get them to be less chaotic because you know that's right. what clinical psychologists love to do, which is to mm-hmm. change people, right? <laughs> to <take> them, <laughs> yeah. uh, like, right. oh, what you're doing, let, let's, let's make you more like me. Right. And then I discovered uh, this really interesting personality trait from, um, uh, from Zuckerman about how there are certain people who actually thrive in chaotic experiences. And right. um, and I thought that is a lot more interesting than what I was initially interested in. So I completely mm-hmm. abandoned that other idea. And I started right, writing right. a book about uh, the what I think of as a superpower uh, where people right. can be calm in these highly chaotic atmospheres. And so sometimes they seek out these highly chaotic situations for work or for uh, fun. But there are times that they actually do create chaos because that's where they feel most comfortable. Right, right. And so what kinds of behaviors are you, I mean, you you talk about daredevils and thrill seekers. Mm -hmm. What sorts of behaviors comprise this, you know, or characterize this group of folks, right? Yeah. So there's, and there's, a, there's a test that you can take um, that, that looks and sort of measures four different components. Mm-hmm. And one is called thrill and adventure seeking. These are people who are out for sort of dangerous kinds of activities, people mm-hmm. who drive fast or love roller coasters, for example, mm-hmm. um, can be in that category. Then there's one that's called experience seeking. That mm-hmm. is the it's kind of sensation seeking of the mind and of the senses. People mm-hmm. that like unusual foods or even unusual people or being in unusual uh, cultures or something that's sort of different from their own. Right. And so, um, and then the last two components of the sensation seeking survey can tell you how much trouble you might get yourself into with ah, your right. behavior. Um, there's boredom susceptibility is how easy it is for you to get bored and how irritated you get when you get bored. Um, ah. I almost never get bored. You know, right. so I, I can just sit in a quiet room for hours and I'm perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, and the last component is called um, disinhibition. Um, this is how uninhibited you right. are and whether or not you look before you leap. And so there right. are some people that are in this category of thrill seekers who aren't sort of, um, who aren't going to do things that are going to get themselves in trouble. They are, they plan. I talked about a guy named Will Gad. He's mm-hmm. the, he was an ice climber and he was the very first person to climb up, um, Niagara Falls when it was frozen. And so he, it took him months to plan that. He's not right. an uninhibited person. Um, right. But there right. are some people that can be uninhibited and they might get themselves into trouble with their thrill seeking behavior. Right, right. And just, um, I know this is a, uh, I did notice in the foreword to your book, yeah. you mentioned that you are not one of these people. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, you're so looking scales, over yeah. Yeah, you're <laughs> the horizon. Yeah. These, from a very safe vantage point. So the scale mm-hmm. goes from zero to 40. Mm-hmm. And so most people are in their like 20s or 30s or 20, you know, the 20 mm-hmm. category. I scored an eight out of 40. <laughs> On this. Yeah. So I am there. I have not met many people that are as low as I am in the sensation seeking category. <laughs> um, but the but the, but the high sensation seekers are people that sort of fascinate me. That you know that yeah. can that seek out these um, situations. And it's funny because I you know 
right now, a lot of them are having a lot of difficulty because they're in right. a situation where they, they can't necessarily do a lot of the thrill-seeking behaviors that they want to do. Right, um, right. Like I was having a conversation last, a couple of weeks ago with a guy who was getting ready to plan um, a sea kayaking journey where he was going to circumnavigate Iceland. Ah, okay. All right. And that sounds beautiful, he, but a little bit beautiful. dangerous, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And he had read the book and he was asking me whether or not I thought this was a good idea for him to do. Ah, interesting. And I yeah. said, I scored an eight. I think most things are bad ideas. <laughs> uh, yeah. I said, I'm not the person to ask. That's um, right. But he's been, you know, inside his house for the last couple of months. And so right. this is a really tough time for a lot of people that are high sensation seekers. Yeah, I was, um, I w yeah, I was curious about the relationship. I mean, the book is ever current, right? So what is, yeah, yeah. what is, do you see behaviors that we're sort of playing out now that you'd be willing to talk about that might be, oh, yeah. you know, sort of, um, that sort of reveal some of these characteristics in individuals? Yeah, so there are two different sets of things I, I've been thinking about given what we're going through right now when mm -hmm. people are sort of mostly staying at home and yeah. um, not going out as much. And one set of behaviors have to do with people that are in the situation where they're, you know, healthcare workers or emergency workers who yeah. are who are not staying home. And yeah. we know that a lot that they that high sensation seeking individuals are are more highly represented in those groups. They seek out those kinds of jobs because oh, it really yeah. utilizes the things that are, um, right. uh, are are part of their personality. And so, um, uh, and the other piece is the the individuals who are uh, not necessarily high sensation seekers, but those who score who are have problems with bone susceptibility and disinhibition mm -hmm. who have to be at home and, and, right. and are asked not to necessarily do these kinds of things. And, and mm -hmm. what I say for those individuals is you can still do a lot of experience seeking things yeah. even from your home. What right. we're doing right now in terms of talking and learning yeah. about, you know, is part of that experience seeking. Yeah. Um, and so uh, trying new foods or really unusual uh, uh, dishes, you know, to be, it's going to take more creativity. Um, right. But I think it's going to be something that's going to be really important for people. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we can't know when this will all end and yeah. and whether things will ever get back to normal in the way whatever normal is, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But do you think that there'll be this burst of, of you know, sort of um, thrill-seeking behaviors? People will be, you know, be high-wire walking and going over Niagara Falls in barrels and that sort of thing. Well, I mean, and I know that there are some people that I've, I follow on Instagram that are high sensation seekers who have start who are still traveling and are ah, still right. doing the things that they were doing before. Um, right. And I think that there are people like me who are low sensation seekers who are are not, you know, because I get asked this a lot, like you know, and you know, what am I going to do as a what what thrill seeking things would I try? And I always tell people. 
uh, I don't have the kind of hardware to run that program. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Because we know there are some uh, physiological uh, differences between high and low sensation seekers yeah. in terms of certain kinds of, of chemical neurotransmitters that they, uh, and chemicals they can produce more of. Right. Uh, high sensation seekers tend to produce a lot more uh, a lot less cortisol when they're in these stressful situations. Ah. And I produce tons of cortisol all the time. Yes, so, that's right. So I, it's so that, that puts stress yeah. hormones yeah. That, that, that are going to get yeah. me sort of revved up and ready yeah. to protect myself. And so a lot of times high sensation seekers don't know that they are in a situation that could be perceived as dangerous. Their body right. doesn't register that as dangerous. And right. so I think that when things are over, they're going to be ready if they're not already out there doing those things. But there will right. always be people like me who are low sensation seekers who are going to be, you know, happy to um, just enjoy beautiful sunsets. From the beach. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I just, um, where do you think these differences come from? Is that, mm. is that, a, um, yeah, I mean, are these sort of, I know there are different uh, sort of, um, you know, there have been proposals that sort of babies are born disinhibited or inhibited, yeah. right? That there are these kinds of basic sort of traits. Is that your view or do you think that obviously it's a mix, but. Yeah, it's a mix. It's an interesting kind of mix. And I've done some research yeah. on that. They do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's some ideas that there may be 40 or so percent of sensation seeking may be genetic but there ah. may be some um, environmental things that could influence it as well. Mm -hmm. When they've asked high sensation seekers about uh, their experience growing up, mm -hmm. they say that a lot of high sensation seekers say that they have uh, parents that are um, more strict, but their parents may have they it may have felt like their parents right. were strict <laughs> because right. they were doing lots of high sensation seeking things. That's right, um, that's right. And, and also for the, the larger, like if you're around a lot of chaos when you're younger, like larger families, yeah. um, do, traveling, doing unusual things, you're also more likely to have that high sensation seeking. Um, right. We do know that there are certain kinds of experiences that can actually reduce that, some of those components. People mm -hmm. that say that they have lots of, uh, they, they went to church a lot or were, were religious or spiritual growing up and to have lower levels of disinhibition, for example. Um, right. And the, it, it, all of all three of the four components change over time. And so as we get older, uh, our levels of thrill and adventure seeking, experience seeking, and disinhibition right. tend to decrease. Our boredom susceptibility tends to remain about the same. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so we get more, not more cautious, but more comfortable being well I, you yeah, know I, I, part of it i feel like we there, there are two things that are going on some, yeah. some of the chemicals that are involved in sensation seeking decrease over time right. so okay. levels of monoamine oxidase for example tend mm -hmm. to be related to sensation seeking and uh they've done some interesting studies with bullfighters where they were oh, interesting their, <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah they were measuring their levels of mao in mm -hmm. bullfighters versus non-bullfighters, and they found right. the levels of MAO to be higher. And so our levels of MAO tend, and testosterone tend to decrease as we I get see. older, and they're right. related to sensation seeking. And there are some cultural things that are linked to this as well, so that there are people who have 
children or they feel like people feel like they have less to they have more to lose um right. as they get older and they don't right. want to you know dive off of a um you know bungee right. jump off of a, of, a, of a of a bridge when they're in their 50s as much as they might have in their right. 20s right right that that rings true <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> although for someone like me it would be never then and, <laughs> and, and still not now that's right um, exactly exactly so um i know this book has gotten a lot of attention already yeah. right so um uh, could you talk a little bit about that and how that you know sort of dovetails with your um you know, you're really uh, interesting public scholarship. So both in teaching and mm -hmm. blogging and, um, you know, your online presence. And so if you could tell me a little bit about yeah. sort of those activities as well. Yeah. So the book came out in um, uh, right before Halloween, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember year. hearing an interview <laughs> with you. Around yes. Yeah. 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 And um, so a lot of stuff that came around them was around yeah. fear and yeah. Sensation seeking. So I did a really fun interview with um, one of my favorite podcasts. If you're if you're not familiar with it, called Shortwave, um, which mm -hmm. is an NPR podcast, and mm -hmm. that was really a, a wonderful experience. Um, yeah. A couple of uh, you know, lots of uh, podcasts and 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 radio interviews. Um, uh, there is also a wonderful. Um, exhibit that I was uh, happy to be involved with. There's a company called Science North, which is from Sudbury, yeah. Ontario, and they create these uh, um, uh, science museum exhibits. And um, they did one on the, you know, on the science of thrill seeking. And so I was, in, I was a consultant with them around that. And so mm -hmm. if you go there, the first thing you do is you take a sensation seeking questionnaire and then a video of me pops up explaining your scores. Right. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. so, which is strange to see, but it's uh, now in Denver um, um, and Colorado. And it's going to be traveling around North America for the next three years. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really, yeah. really, really interesting. Um, um, I was um, curious about what's next. You know, um, yeah. But I know you're working on um, textbooks, mm -hmm. and yeah. um, you know, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So a couple of things next. I mean, so um, the Olympics will happen eventually, yeah. and so I'll be talking a little bit about uh, sensation seeking with the Olympics. Um, I was mm -hmm. supposed to speak at South by Southwest um, this yeah. year, and mm -hmm. and and we'll see if that if I'll be going back when South by Southwest happens again. So I'm ha yeah. I'm excited about that as well. Yeah. Um, and then my next two projects are textbook projects. Um, right. One is a psychopathology textbook, and the other is a is a um, is a renewal revamp of my introductory mm -hmm. psychology textbook. Right. Um, and and those are. Um, a lot of work but they're they feel really rewarding too yeah uh, yeah well. but i will say this book was almost as hard to write even though it's shorter uh than a right. textbook because the textbook is almost like you know you're, you're driving on a path but you know exactly where you need to go right and right this is sort of like off-roading where you're not right. sure where the book is going to end up in even in the midst of writing it <laughs> right 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 um well um that i'm 
looking forward to the textbooks and also to getting get you know us getting back out there um in the world hopefully so that you can talk more and more about this book right and yeah. um and uh um is there anything else you would like to talk about in our cnbc interview this has been a wonderful experience yeah. and this is one of those things that people think, oh, by the time you finish writing a book, you're so sick of the topic. And yeah. I'm. This is one of those ideas that I. I think it's a fun yeah. book to read. It's a fun book to work on. And um, in fact, the more I talk about it, the more I, I enjoy talking about it. So I appreciate yeah. you reaching out to me to, to, oh. to talk about this topic. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And um, so thank you so much for taking time out. I know that you're working, you know, working hard on your projects this summer. And um, thank you for joining us and inside the lab with the CNBC. And um, we also have other interviews as long as this one will be on our YouTube channel, uh, which is called Emory CNBC. So thank you, Ken. Thank you so much for having uh, me.